Chapter 5 of She This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Gisburn She by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 5 The Head of the Ethiopian at length the heralds and forerunners of the royal sun had done their work, and searching out the shadows had caused them to flee away. Then up he came in glory from his ocean bed, and flooded the earth with warmth and light. I sat there in the boat, listening to the gentle lapping of the water, and watched him rise, till presently the slight drift of the boat brought the odd-shaped rock, or peak, at the end of the promontory which we had weathered with so much peril, between me and the majestic sight and blotted it from my view. I still continued, however, to stare at the rock, absently enough, till presently it became edged with the fire of the growing light behind it, and then I started, as well I might, for I perceived that the top of the peak, which was about eighty feet high, by one hundred and fifty feet thick at its base, was shaped like a negro's head and face, whereon was stamped a most fiendish and terrifying expression. There was no doubt about it, there were the thick lips, the fat cheeks and the squat nose standing out with startling clearness against the flaming background. There too was the round skull, washed into shape perhaps by thousands of years of wind and weather, and to complete the resemblance there was a scrubby growth of weeds or lichen upon it, which against the sun looked for all the world like the wool on a colossal negro's head. It certainly was very odd, so odd that now I believe it is not a mere freak of nature, but a gigantic monument fashioned, like the well-known Egyptian sphinx, by a forgotten people out of a pile of rock that lent itself to their design, perhaps as an emblem of warning and defiance to any enemies who approached the harbour. Unfortunately, we were never able to ascertain whether or not this was the case, inasmuch as the rock was difficult of access both from the land and the waterside, and we had other things to attend to. Myself, Considering the matter by the light of what we afterwards saw, I believe that it was fashioned by man, but whether or not this is so, there it stands, and sullenly stares from age to age, out across the changing sea. There it stood two thousand years and more ago, when Amenartas, the Egyptian princess, and the wife of Leo's remote ancestor Callicrates, gazed upon its devilish face, and there I have no doubt it will stand when as many centuries as are numbered between her day and our own are added to the year that bore us to oblivion. "'What do you think of that, Job?' I asked of our retainer, who was sitting on the edge of the boat, trying to get as much sunshine as possible, and generally looking uncommonly wretched, and I pointed to the fiery and demoniacal head. "'Oh, Lord, sir,' answered Job, who now perceived the object for the first time. I think that the old gentleman must have been sitting for his portrait on them rocks. I laughed, and the laugh woke up Leo. Hello, he said. What's the matter with me? I am all stiff. Where is the dow? Give me some brandy, please. You may be thankful that you are not stiffer, my boy, I answered. The dow is sunk. Everybody on board her is drowned with the exception of us four, and your own life was only saved by a miracle. And whilst Job, now that it was light enough, "'searched about in a locker for the brandy for which Leo asked. "'I told him the history of our night's adventure. "'Great heavens!' he said faintly. "'And to think that we should have been chosen to live through it.' "'By this time the brandy was forthcoming, 
and we all had a good pull at it, and thankful enough we were for it. Also the sun was beginning to get strength, and warm our chilled bones, for we had been wet through for five hours or more. "'Why,' said Leo with a gasp, as he put down the brandy bottle, "'there is the head the writing talks of, the rock carven like the head of an Ethiopian.' "'Yes,' I said, "'there it is.' "'Well, then,' he answered, "'the whole thing is true.' "'I don't see at all that that follows,' I answered. "'We knew this head was here. Your father saw it. Very likely it is not the same head that the writing talks of. Or if it is, it proves nothing.' Leo smiled at me in a superior way. "'You are an unbelieving Jew, Uncle Horace,' he said. "'Those who live will see.' "'Exactly so,' I answered. "'And now perhaps you will observe that we are drifting across a sandbank into the mouth of the river. "'Get hold of your oar, Job, and we will row in and see if we can find a place to land.' "'The river mouth which we were entering did not appear to be a very wide one, "'though as yet the long banks of steaming mist that clung about its shores "'had not lifted sufficiently to enable us to see its exact measure.' There was, as is the case with nearly every East African river, a considerable bar at the mouth, which, no doubt, when the wind was on shore and the tide running out, was absolutely impassable, even for a boat drawing only a few inches. But as things were, it was manageable enough, and we did not ship a cupful of water. In twenty minutes we were well across it, with but slight assistance from ourselves, and being carried by a strong, though somewhat variable, breeze well up the harbour, by this time the mist was being sucked up by the sun, which was getting uncomfortably hot, and we saw that the mouth of the little estuary was here about half a mile across, and that the banks were very marshy and crowded with crocodiles lying about on the mud like logs. About a mile ahead of us, however, was what appeared to be a strip of firm land, and for this we steered. In another quarter of an hour we were there, and making the boat fast to a beautiful tree with broad shining leaves, and flowers of the magnolia species, only they were rose-coloured and not white, which hung over the water, we disembarked. Footnote. There is a known species of magnolia with pink flowers. It is indigenous in Sikkim, and known as Magnolia Campbellii. Editor. End of footnote. This done, we undressed, washed ourselves, and spread our clothes, together with the contents of the boat, in the sun to dry, which they very quickly did. Then, taking shelter from the sun under some trees, we made a hearty breakfast off a paysandu potted tongue, of which we had a good quantity with us, congratulating ourselves loudly on our good fortune in having loaded and provisioned the boat on the previous day before the hurricane destroyed the dhow. By the time that we had finished our meal, our clothes were quite dry, and we hastened to get into them, feeling not a little refreshed. Indeed, with the exception of weariness and a few bruises, none of us were the worse for the terrifying adventure which had been fatal to all our companions. Leo, it is true, had been half drowned, but that is no great matter to a vigorous young athlete of five and twenty. After breakfast we started to look about us. We were on a strip of dry land about two hundred yards broad by five hundred long, bordered on one side by the river, and on the other three by endless desolate swamps, that stretched as far as the eye could reach. This strip of land was raised about twenty-five feet above the plain of the surrounding swamps and the river level. Indeed it had every appearance of having been made by the hand of man. This place has been a wharf, said Leo, dogmatically. Nonsense, I answered. 
who would be stupid enough to build a wharf in the middle of these dreadful marshes in a country inhabited by savages? That is, if it is inhabited at all. Perhaps it was not always marsh, and perhaps the people were not always savage, he said dryly, looking down the steep bank, for we were standing by the river. Look there, he went on, pointing to a spot where the hurricane of the previous night had torn up one of the magnolia trees by the roots, which had grown on the extreme edge of the bank just where it sloped down to the water, and lifted a large cake of earth with them. Is not that stonework? If not, it is very like it. Nonsense, I said again, but we clambered down to the spot, and got between the upturned roots and the bank. Well, he said. But I did not answer this time. I only whistled. For there, laid bare by the removal of the earth, was an undoubted facing of solid stone laid in large blocks and bound together with brown cement, so hard that I could make no impression on it with the file in my shooting-knife. Nor was this all. Seeing something projecting through the soil at the bottom of the bared patch of walling, I removed the loose earth with my hands, and revealed a huge stone ring, a foot or more in diameter, and about three inches thick. This fairly staggered me. Looks rather like a wharf, where good-sized vessels have been moored, does it not, Uncle Horace? said Leo, with an excited grin. I tried to say nonsense again, but the word stuck in my throat. The ring spoke for itself. In some past age, vessels had been moored there, and this stone wall was undoubtedly the remnant of a solidly constructed wharf. Probably the city to which it had belonged lay buried beneath the swamp behind it. "'Begins to look as though there was something in the story after all, Uncle Horace,' said the exultant Leo, and reflecting on the mysterious negro's head and the equally mysterious stonework, I made no direct reply. "'A country like Africa,' I said, "'is sure to be full of the relics of long-dead and forgotten civilizations. Nobody knows the age of the Egyptian civilization, and very likely it had offshoots. Then there were the Babylonians, and the Phoenicians, and the Persians, and all manner of people, all more or less civilized, to say nothing of the Jews whom everybody wants nowadays. It is possible that they, or any one of them, may have had colonies or trading stations about here. Remember those buried Persian cities that the consul showed us at Kilwa? Footnote. Near Kilwa, on the east coast of Africa, about four hundred miles south of Zanzibar, is a cliff which has been recently washed by the waves. On the top of this cliff are Persian tombs, known to be at least seven centuries old, by the dates still legible upon them. Beneath these tombs is a layer of debris, representing a city. Farther down the cliff is a second layer, representing an older city, and farther down still a third layer, the remains of yet another city, of vast and unknown antiquity. Beneath the bottom city were recently found some specimens of glazed earthenware, such as are occasionally to be met with on that coast to this day. I believe that they are now in the possession of Sir John Kirk. Editor. End of footnote. Quite so, said Leo, but that is not what you said before. Well, what is to be done now? I asked, turning the conversation. As no answer was forthcoming, we walked to the edge of the swamp and looked over it. It was apparently boundless, and vast flocks of every sort of waterfowl flew from its recesses, till it was sometimes difficult to see the sky. Now that the sun was getting high, it drew thin, sickly-looking clouds of poisonous vapour from the surface of the marsh and from the scummy pools of stagnant water. Two things are clear to me,' I said, addressing my three companions. 
who stared at this spectacle in dismay. First, that we can't go across there, I pointed to the swamp, and secondly, that if we stop here we shall certainly die of fever. That's as clear as a haystack, sir, said Job. Very well, then. There are two alternatives before us. One is to bout ship and try and run for some port in the whale-boat, which would be a sufficiently risky proceeding, and the other to sail or row on up the river and see where we come to. I don't know what you are going to do, said Leo, setting his mouth, but I am going up that river. Job turned up the whites of his eyes and groaned, and the Arab murmured, Allah, and groaned also. As for me, I remarked sweetly that as we seemed to be between the devil and the deep sea, it did not much matter where we went. But in reality, I was as anxious to proceed as Leo. The colossal negro's head and the stone wharf had excited my curiosity to an extent of which I was secretly ashamed, and I was prepared to gratify it at any cost. Accordingly, having carefully fitted the mast, restowed the boat, and got out our rifles, we embarked. Fortunately the wind was blowing on shore from the ocean, so we were able to hoist the sail. Indeed we afterwards found out that as a general rule the wind set onshore from daybreak for some hours, and offshore again at sunset, and the explanation that I offer of this is, that when the earth is cooled by the dew and the night, the hot air rises, and the draught rushes in from the sea till the sun has once more heated it through. At least that appeared to be the rule here. Taking advantage of this favouring wind, we sailed merrily up the river for three or four hours. Once we came across a school of hippopotami, which rose and bellowed dreadfully at us within ten or a dozen fathoms of the boat, much to Job's alarm, and, I will confess, to my own. These were the first hippopotami that we had ever seen, and to judge by their insatiable curiosity, I should judge that we were the first white men that they had ever seen. Upon my word, I once or twice thought that they were coming into the boat to gratify it, Leo wanted to fire at them, but I dissuaded him, fearing the consequences. Also we saw hundreds of crocodiles basking on the muddy banks, and thousands upon thousands of waterfowl. Some of these we shot, and among them was a wild goose, which in addition to the sharp curved spurs on its wings, had a spur about three-quarters of an inch long, growing from the skull just between the eyes. We never shot another like it, so I do not know if it was a sport or a distinct species. In the latter case, this incident may interest naturalists. Job named it the Unicorn Goose. About midday the sun grew intensely hot, and the stench drawn up by it from the marshes which the river drains was something too awful, and caused us instantly to swallow precautionary doses of quinine. Shortly afterwards the breeze died away altogether, and as rowing our heavy boat against stream in the heat was out of the question, we were thankful enough to get under the shade of a group of trees, a species of willow, that grew by the edge of the river, and lie there and gasp, till at length the approach of sunset put a period to our miseries. Seeing what appeared to be an open space of water straight ahead of us, we determined to row there before settling what to do for the night. Just as we were about to loosen the boat, however, a beautiful water-buck, with great horns curving forward, and a white stripe across the rump, came down to the river to drink, without perceiving us hidden away within fifty yards under the willows. Leo was the first to catch sight of it, and being an ardent sportsman, thirsting for the blood of big game, about which he had been dreaming for months, he instantly stiffened all over, and pointed like a setter dog. Seeing what was the matter, 
I handed him his express rifle, at the same time taking my own. "'Now then,' I whispered, "'mind you don't miss.' "'Miss?' he whispered back contemptuously. "'I could not miss it if I tried.' He lifted the rifle, and the rowan-coloured buck, having drunk his fill, raised his head and looked out across the river. He was standing right against the sunset sky on a little eminence, or ridge of ground, which ran across the swamp, evidently a favourite path for game, and there was something very beautiful about him. Indeed, I do not think that if I live to a hundred, I shall ever forget that desolate and yet most fascinating scene. It is stamped upon my memory. To the right and left were wide stretches of lonely, death-breeding swamp, unbroken and unrelieved so far as the eye could reach, except here and there by ponds of black and peaty water that, mirror-like, flashed up the red rays of the setting sun. Behind us and before stretched the vista of the sluggish river, ending in glimpses of a reed-fringed lagoon, on the surface of which the long lights of the evening played as the faint breeze stirred the shadows. To the west loomed the huge red ball of the sinking sun, now vanishing down the vapoury horizon and filling the great heaven, high across whose arch the cranes and wildfowl streamed in line, square and triangle, with flashes of flying gold and the lurid stain of blood. And then ourselves, three modern Englishmen in a modern English boat, seeming to jar upon and look out of tone with that measureless desolation, and in front of us the noble buck limbed out upon a background of ruddy sky. Bang! Away he goes with a mighty bound! Leo has missed him! Bang! Right under him again! Now for a shot! I must have one, though he is going like an arrow, and a hundred yards away and more! By Jove! Over and over and over! Well, I think I've wiped your eye there, Master Leo, I say struggling against the ungenerous exultation that in such a supreme moment of one's existence will rise in the best-mannered sportsman's breast. "'Confound you, yes,' growled Leo, and then with that quick smile that is one of his charms, lighting up his handsome face like a ray of light, "'I beg your pardon, old fellow. I congratulate you. It was a lovely shot, and mine were vile.' We got out of the boat and ran to the book, which was shot through the spine and stone dead. It took us a quarter of an hour or more to clean it and cut off as much of the best meat as we could carry, and having packed this away, we had barely light enough to row up into the lagoon-like space, into which, there being a hollow in the swamp, the river here expanded. Just as the light vanished, we cast anchor about thirty fathoms from the edge of the lake. We did not dare to go ashore, not knowing if we should find dry ground to camp on, and greatly fearing the poisonous exhalations from the marsh from which we thought we should be freer on the water. So we lighted a lantern, and made our evening meal off another potted tongue in the best fashion that we could, and then prepared to go to sleep, only, however, to find that sleep was impossible. For whether they were attracted by the lantern, or by the unaccustomed smell of a white man for which they had been waiting for the last thousand years or so, I know not. But certainly we were presently attacked by tens of thousands of the most bloodthirsty, pertinacious and huge mosquitoes that I ever saw or read of. In clouds they came, and pinged and buzzed and bit till we were nearly mad. Tobacco smoke only seemed to stir them into a merrier and more active life, till at length we were driven to covering ourselves with blankets, head and all, and sitting to slowly stew and continually scratch and swear beneath them. And as we sat, 
Suddenly, rolling out like thunder through the silence, came the deep roar of a lion, and then of a second lion, moving among the reeds within sixty yards of us. "'I say,' said Leo, sticking his head out from under his blanket, "'lucky we ain't on the banky, avuncular. Leo sometimes addressed me in this disrespectful way. "'Curse it! A mosquito has bitten me on the nose!' and the head vanished again. Shortly after this the moon came up, and notwithstanding every variety of roar that echoed over the water to us from the lions on the banks, we began, thinking ourselves perfectly secure, to gradually doze off. I do not quite know what it was that made me poke my head out of the friendly shelter of the blanket, perhaps because I found that the mosquitoes were biting right through it. Anyhow, as I did so I heard Job whisper in a frightened voice, "'Oh, my stars, look there!' Instantly we all of us looked, and this was what we saw in the moonlight. Near the shore were two wide and ever-widening circles of concentric rings rippling away across the surface of the water, and in the heart and centre of the circles were two dark, moving objects. "'What is it?' asked I. "'It is those damned lions, sir,' answered Job, in a tone which was an odd mixture of a sense of personal injury, habitual respect, and acknowledged fear. And they are swimming here to heat us, he added, nervously picking up an H in his agitation. I looked again. There was no doubt about it. I could catch the glare of their ferocious eyes. Attracted either by the smell of the newly killed waterbuck meat, or of ourselves, the hungry beasts were actually storming our position. Leo already had his rifle in his hand. I called to him to wait till they were nearer, and meanwhile grabbed my own. Some fifteen feet from us the water shallowed on a bank to the depth of about fifteen inches, and presently the first of them, it was the lioness, got onto it, shook herself, and roared. At that moment Leo fired. The bullet went right down her open mouth and out at the back of her neck, and down she dropped with a splash, dead. The other lion, a full-grown male, was some two paces behind her. At this second he got his forepaws onto the bank, when a strange thing happened. There was a rush and disturbance of the water, such as one sees in a pond in England, when a pike takes a little fish, only a thousand times fiercer and larger, and suddenly the lion gave a most terrific snarling roar, and sprang forward onto the bank, dragging something black with him. "'Allah!' shouted Mohammed. "'A crocodile has got him by the leg!' And sure enough he had." We could see the long snout with its gleaming lines of teeth and the reptile body behind it. And then followed an extraordinary scene indeed. The lion managed to get well onto the bank, the crocodile half standing and half swimming, still nipping his hind leg. He roared till the air quivered with the sound, and then with a savage, shrieking snarl, turned round and clawed hold of the crocodile's head. The crocodile shifted his grip, having, as we afterwards discovered, had one of his eyes torn out, and slightly turned over. Instantly the lion got him by the throat and held on, and then over and over they rolled upon the bank, struggling hideously. It was impossible to follow their movements, but when we next got a clear view, the tables had turned, for the crocodile, whose head seemed to be a mass of gore, had got the lion's body in his iron jaws, just above the hips, and was squeezing him and shaking him to and fro. For his part, the tortured brute, roaring in agony, was clawing and biting madly at his enemy's scaly head, and fixing his great hind claws in the crocodile's, comparatively speaking, soft throat, 
ripping it open as one would rip a glove. Then all of a sudden, the end came. The lion's head fell forward on the crocodile's back, and with an awful groan he died, and the crocodile, after standing for a minute motionless, slowly rolled over onto his side, his jaws still fixed across the carcass of the lion, which we afterwards found he had bitten almost in halves. This duel to the death was a wonderful and a shocking sight, and one that I suppose few men have seen, and thus it ended. When it was all over, leaving Mohammed to keep a lookout, we managed to spend the rest of the night as quietly as the mosquitoes would allow. End of chapter 5